Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR-130F-11, Sacrifice and Responsibility, Second Commandment, Leviticus, Love 4, Verses 1-15. Leviticus 4, 1 through 15. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a soul shall sin through ignorance against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which ought not to be done, and shall do against any of them, if the priest that is anointed do sin according to the sin of the people, then let him bring for his sin which he hath sinned a young bullock without blemish unto the Lord for a sin offering. And he shall bring the bullock unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, and shall lay his hand upon the bullock's head and kill the bullock before the Lord. And the priest that is anointed shall take of the bullock's blood and bring it to the tabernacle of the congregation. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle of the blood seven times before the Lord, before the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood upon the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall pour all the blood of the bullock at the bottom of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he shall take off from it all the fat of the bullock for the sin offering, the fat that covereth the inwards, and all the fat that is upon the inwards, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is upon them, which is by the flanks, and the call above the liver, with the kidneys it shall be taken away, as it was taken off from the bullock of the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall burn them upon the altar of the burnt offering. And the skin of the bullock and all his flesh with his head and with his legs and with his inwards and his dung, even the whole bullock, shall be he carried forth without the camp unto a clean place, where the ashes are poured out, and burn him on the wood with fire. Where the ashes are poured out, shall he be burnt. And if the whole congregation of Israel sin through ignorance, and the thing be hid from the eye of the assembly, they have done somewhat against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which should not be done and are guilty. When the sin which they have sinned against it is known, then the congregation shall offer a young bullock for the sin and bring him before the tabernacle of the congregation. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands upon the head of the bullock before the Lord, and the bullock shall be killed before the Lord. Our scripture this morning deals with sacrifice. Indeed, we shall be considering the first seven chapters of Leviticus briefly this morning. All of them, and a great deal more of the law of Moses, deals with sacrifice. It is customary today to neglect the fact of sacrifice as something that is a relic of our ignorant past. But nothing could be wronger. Because we find that sacrifice appears in every civilization, in every tribe, in every culture that this world has ever known. There has never been a culture without 
sacrifice. Moreover, in spite of the cross-current of sin in man's nature, there is still, however it sometimes takes very perverted fashions, an ingrained desire on the part of man to sacrifice so that we see on all sides that men do, in spite of their rejection of the concept of sacrifice, perpetually sacrifice to a variety of things. Some men will give of themselves sacrificially to their calling, and many a man will work sacrificially even when there is no pay or visible reward. He gives himself sacrificially to his calling. Others will sacrifice themselves for all kinds of things that are thoroughly unworthy. But to sacrifice seems to be inescapable in man's nature. Nothing can be done to escape this aspect. Psychologists have usually walked around this fact. William James was the only one who recognized that this was almost an overpowering aspect of man and hoped that something could be done with it to build world peace upon this, but his plan, of course, was futile because he reckoned without the fact of sin. But suffice it to say, sacrifice is something that cannot be removed from the human scene. It is apparently basic to man's nature. It is important for us, therefore, to understand what the Bible teaches about sacrifice so that we see sacrifice as God ordained it to be, because everything else is a perversion of that which God ordained. Now as we understand sacrifice in the law of God, the first thing we must recognize is that sacrifice in the Bible requires a doctrine of human sacrifice while rejecting the physical sacrifice of man as sinful. All biblical sacrifice rests on the idea of the gift of life to God, the devotion of man's life to God, either an expiation, expiation for sin, or in consecration in the form of service. As a result, sacrifice, human sacrifice, the sacrifice of man in the sense of total devotion to God, is basic to the Bible. But, we must say second, the physical sacrifice of sinful man as an offering to God is a fearful offense against him. And the law tells us it invites the judgment of God. Human sacrifice is an attempt to bypass God's law and find man's way to God. 
It is humanistic to the core. It is an attempt by man to say that atonement by man on his own terms is sufficient. And what men have done when they have offered human sacrifice is in a sense to try to buy insurance from God. Now all sacrifice in antiquity and throughout the modern world wherever it still exists in various cultures is anti-biblical in that it is a form of insurance policy. When men in the ancient world, say in Greece or in Rome or in Japan today, among those who do go to the temples and offer sacrifices, when they went, they were buying insurance. They were saying to the gods or whatever powers existed, we want to be left alone in this or that venture, and we are paying an insurance policy, and if you don't give us what we want, we'll shop elsewhere and take our business to another temple. And this is why you had a variety of competing gods and competing temples, because what you were doing was buying insurance, and if you didn't get good insurance from one, you went to another. It was not the idea that they represented any absolute power to whom you owed total devotion and allegiance. And human sacrifice, therefore, was the supreme way of buying insurance. A monarch offered up his child or offered up some of his servants as a way of saying, now look, you see how much I'm ready to offer up to you, are you not? in return for this gold and silver and human lives, going to give me insurance against this or that enemy or this or that peril. Third, we must say then that the total devotion to God, our total sacrifice to God, because the word devote in its origins meant to sacrifice. Our total devotion to God in terms of the Bible requires obedience to God's law. Obedience to God's law in love and faith. The Ten Commandments are followed by summons to obey the law in total devotion. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Sacrifice in the Bible is always linked to obedience. And the prophets again and again denounced sacrifice that was purely formal, that was not linked to obedience to the law. But fourth, we must then say that since no man keeps the law perfectly or ever has, since man is a sinner and can only keep the law to any degree when he has been redeemed and given a new nature, sacrifice typifies Christ, our substitute. The death penalty of God is against all sin against all rebellion. And man being in rebellion against God, 
has Jesus Christ as his sin-bearer, the perfect man who kept the law in perfect devotion, and as his substitute, accepted the death penalty from God. And so the sacrificial animals of the Old Testament typified Christ. Therefore, they had to be clean animals without blemish. And as we saw when the animal was offered, the offerer had to lay his hands upon the bullock's head. The word lay can be better translated lean his hands as it were, to put his weight upon the sacrificial animal to indicate that this was himself, to place the burden of his sin upon it, indicating that he recognized that God was providing a substitute to accept the death penalty, one who was to come, even Jesus Christ, and that through his death the sacrificer had life. Thus, fifth, sacrifice requires of all believers that they accept the fact that their life stands in the sacrifice of the innocent one. Those not covered by the sacrifice of Christ are under the sentence of death. When the animal was sacrificed, The blood was sprinkled in part upon the altar, in part upon the people, to signify that they were now one blood, that they had a common life, they were brought together, and also to signify that if this bond of peace was violated by flagrant sin, then the penalty was death. But sixth, the sacrifice and the laws of sacrifice incorporated into the law a basic principle. And the fourth chapter of Leviticus, among others, incorporates this at great length and detail. And this principle is simply this. The greater the responsibility the greater the culpability, the greater the sin under the law. In other words, the more important a person is, the worse his sin in the sight of God. And the fourth chapter of Leviticus gives us four grades of sin, four levels of sin. And in verses 3 to 12, it tells us that the greatest sin, the most fearful in the sight of God, is that committed by the priest, by the spiritual leader. And for this, a bullock had to be offered. The second category was the entire nation, and for them, a bullock had to be offered. Consider the implications of that. It means that the sin of a religious leader is equally important in God's sight as the sin of the entire nation. 
This means that the sin of a minister or of a priest or of a pope or a bishop is in God's sight as great as the sin of that entire nation wherein he dwells. I think perhaps some of you will understand now why I am so hard on the clergy. The Bible requires that I be very hard on them. Their waywardness is so fearful in the sight of God. And, you notice, ignorance as well. Because it says here, if he sin through ignorance. And the sad fact is that even of many of the best of our clergy, you can sit in church week in and week out and you find that you know more than he does. And that's a sin through ignorance on his part. God says, therefore, in my sight I equate their sin. as equally fearful as the sin of an entire nation. Because if the people are not taught, how shall they follow? How shall they know the law? It is a fearful thing then to teach, to preach, to be a spiritual leader and not to recognize the consequences of this office in the sight of God. And we can only say that today there is a fearful responsibility that must be borne by the spiritual leaders of this country. They sin with knowledge, they sin with ignorance, they sin, and God will judge them accordingly. As we've already seen, the second level of sin in importance is that of the entire nation. Verses 13 through 21 deal with this. It is of equal significance as the sin of the people, of the priest, or of the spiritual leader. The third level or grade of sin is that of the prince, the rulers, government officials. And a goat, a male, a kid, is to be offered for them. Now, of course, this comes as a shock to some people, perhaps, because they are so used to thinking politically today. They are so used to seeing as the most important in a country the prime minister or president or dictator or whoever is at the top. But the real power is still in the pulpit. 
If we don't recognize it, the communists and the various socialist groups do. This is why, beginning with the Civil War era, the various subversive groups decided that in order to subvert the United States, as I pointed out to some of you more than once, it was imperative that these subversives subvert the church. Because more people go to church every Sunday in the United States than have ever voted in any national election. And so they began the subversion of the clergy, and the clergy has submitted to it. They've gone for it like a pig goes to the trough. And is it any wonder then that the politicians today are what they are? I think one could say, and I think everyone here knows my opinion of President Johnson, that he may be better than we deserve as a nation. Politics follows the spiritual climate of a people. And the prophet Isaiah said the day will come when wise men will refuse to rule over you. Fourth, on the level of sins is that of individuals. And here there are a variety of offerings possible a female kid, which could be considered a little more important than that of a prince's offering or a government official's, a lamb, which is a cheaper and lesser offering, or two turtle doves or two pigeons, which are very insignificant offerings. What does this mean? It means that with individuals there are variations, and variations are permitted in terms of their financial circumstances. And it means, therefore, that a wealthy individual has power, and his sin, therefore, is on a higher level, so that the sin of a tremendously wealthy industrialist of a Ford or of a Rockefeller, for example, is equally important and perhaps more important than that of a president or of a prime minister. But that the sin of a very simple, ordinary person, while still a sin in the sight of God and requiring atonement, in its consequences in the sight of God, is on a lesser level. We see, therefore, that all sin is sin in the sight of God, but there are degrees, there are levels of sin, and the greater the responsibility, the greater the sin, and the greatest responsibility is with the ministry. 
After all, as Proverbs 29, verse 18 declares, where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. As the Berkeley version indicates, this can be rendered also where there is no prophetic ministry, that is a ministry that truly speaks for God. The people run wild. A seventh fact that must be drawn from the biblical laws of sacrifice is that ignorance of the law is no excuse. This appears clearly from Leviticus 4, where it speaks of sins according to ignorance. And Leviticus 5, sins of inadvertency. These are still sins. We didn't intend to sin, but we sinned. We didn't know it was a sin, but it's still a sin. In other words, what the law is making clear here is that it is not what our conscience says, but what the law says that constitutes sin. Man may sin with a good conscience. I may drive down a street at 45 thinking that that is legitimate there, but it may now be 35. Now, I may have done it in good conscience, but I was still violating the law. The criterion, therefore, of transgression is not man's conscience, but the law of God. And many of the most fearful sins are committed sometimes with good conscience. Cannibalism and human sacrifice are performed as matters of conscience. Fallen man's conscience is fallen also. Eighth, we must then say further that what the law declares, as in Leviticus 5.16, not only was the law given to requiring sacrifice, that is, atonement for sin, but it required restitution also. And he shall make amends for the harm he that he hath done in the holy thing, and shall add the fifth part thereto and give it unto the priest. And the priest shall make an atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering, and it shall be forgiven him. The law of restitution we have dealt with previously in brief, and we shall deal with it again in greater detail when we come to the commandment, Thou shalt not steal. Briefly, if a man stole a hundred dollars, he was to restore not only the hundred, but another hundred, the exact amount. that he had stolen so that it cost him exactly what he intended that it should cost the person he robbed. 
But restitution had to be made not only to the individual that he robbed, but to God because he violated God's law order. And so he owed God a double tithe, twenty dollars, because he had broken God's law order. The law required restitution. A law order had been violated. An individual's property rights had been violated. There had to be restitution to the individual and to the law order. Ninth and finally, the law required as a part of the peace offerings, leaven. And in Leviticus 7.13, we find this. This is an important verse because we are so often told by the Scopelians that leaven is a type of sin and leaven is not acceptable to God as an offering and so on. And I notice that the people who hold to this usually pass over the leavened offerings. But God did require leaven as an offering. It could not be an offering as a burnt offering or a sin offering or a trespass offering, anything that involved atonement. Because the fact of atonement represented Christ's work but the peace offering represented man's work. And leaven represents corruptibility, something that can pass away. And man's works are represented by the leavened offering. What we do for God can pass away. The churches we build, the charitable works we do, the books we write, the activities we engage in. In time, these all go. But they are still required by God. They are our peace offering. They represent our communion with him, and God requires them. And so we must render them. This, then, in brief, is the implication for the law of the sacrificial system. It is a basic part of the law. It lays down fundamental principles of the law that are valid for all time. For us, Christ is our sacrifice. Therefore, the old sacrificial system is finished. But the laws of the sacrificial system, as they lay down the requirements of responsibility, of restitution, of knowledge of the law of God, these remain. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we give thanks unto thee for this thy word. 
And we thank thee that Jesus Christ is our sacrifice and that in him we have remission of sins and newness of life. Enable us day by day, O Lord, to meet our responsibilities with knowledge, with faith, and with true devotion, that we may serve thee acceptably and be blessed and prospered by thy grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Are there any questions now? Yes. The symbolism of burning the offering is this. The offering represented the sinful, the condemned person, and it meant that the sin was consumed, that now God saw us no longer as guilty but as innocent in his sight. Another question? Yes and no. In the offerings of atonement, in some cases, a portion was the priest's portion, which meant that after consecration it became sacred unto him, so that it went for the priest and his table. Then in certain other offerings of the first fruit and the like, it became a portion that was eaten both by the individual and by the poor. But this was not offerings of atonement. Offerings, thank offerings and peace offerings. Yes. Yes. Yes, he had reference precisely to the kind of thing that I was talking about, sins of ignorance. Job was an exceedingly conscientious man, and as such he not only offered sacrifices for his sins, but when he did he offered sacrifices for his uh, children, lest they had sinned in ignorance. This is what he had reference to. I didn't hear you. No. He no doubt did. No, uh, what he did was no doubt to instruct his children thoroughly, but when he offered sacrifices, he offered them up for himself and for his children also, lest through ignorance or inadvertency at any time they had done any wrong. This was the thoroughness of his conscientious parenthood. It was an indication of how conscientious uh, a father, Job was, that it was cited. 
Yes? In the Old Testament, it could be done, but you see, only if at the same time he instructed his children, spoke to them. It couldn't be just a formal ritual. It had no meaning. But with it went instruction. Yes? Yes. Sin is any want of conformity to the law of God. Any want of conformity. Uh, it's any transgression of the law of God. Yes. A peace offering was an indication of, uh, well, there were, Apart from the offerings of atonement, there were two types. There was the thank offering, which was an offering of gratitude. Then there was the peace offering, which was to celebrate the peace and communion with God. It was, in a, in a sense, rejoicing of gratitude, of thanks, but of a different sort. A thank offering was at a particular occasion of gratitude, but... The, the peace offering, an expression of joy. Yes. Yes, that's the modern uh, usage of peace offering. It's to make peace, but the atonement offerings were what made for peace. The peace offering celebrated the fact of peace. Yes. Yes, a good question, very good one. How can a nation sin and not in an individual way? A nation can sin collectively when as a body it takes a course of action that is wrong and it has to bear the consequences of it. For example, one of your number was telling me of the dismay of San Franciscans as they are facing what they are. And he very properly told them that uh, they asked for it. Didn't they vote in their mayor? Didn't they vote in their present administration? Are they not responsible? It's their sin. They're going to pay for it, you see. So there is such a thing as a collective sin. A congregation as a whole, for example, can call a man as pastor knowing what, it, what he is. Now, I've known cases where congregations were warned of what they did, the kind of man they were calling. They still called him. They have a collective sin. You see, there they sinned as a group. Just as a group has a collective uh, entity, they act collectively, therefore they have a sin a consequence for their collective action. We as a nation violated one of the cardinal principles of George Washington when we got involved in a foreign war in 1917 and again 1941 and a couple of times since. We're paying for it. We are guilty as a whole for our involvement. We all bear the consequences of it. 
we are guilty collectively of having violated the Constitution again and again, the compulsory draft for foreign service, which is unconstitutional, and so on. Now, the only way we can absolve ourselves individually of this is to witness against it, you see, to make a stand against it. Our time is almost up, and there are a couple of things I'd like to call to your attention. This past week, a couple of items appeared in the newspaper, which I think were of interest, uh, because we discussed, as you recall, the tithe not too long ago. And you recall I pointed out at that time that George Washington believed in a compulsory tithe collected by the state to be turned over to whatever church or organization you designated it. He felt that this was the best solution for society. Now, the problem of income tax payment by the wealthy is beginning to trouble a few people in Congress because a great many wealthy people pay no taxes or very little. Figures compiled by the Internal Revenue Service show that 22 persons with adjusted gross income of one million or more per year paid no federal income taxes during the fiscal year which ended June 30, 1965. And they cite one case a few years ago where a man made $23 million in one year and paid no taxes. Now consider the implications of that. Indeed, the millionaires who do pay any substantial amount of taxes are few, very few. Socialism is the best system ever devised by the rich to get richer and to make the poor and the middle classes in particular pay for it. Now, had we continued in terms of what George Washington wanted us to do, to continue in terms of the compulsory tithe, what it, would it mean? Well, these millionaires would have paid, those who had a million dollars income in a year, $100,000 in a compulsory tithe, which would have gone to Christian schoolwork or any kind of schoolwork they designated, or to any church. And the man who paid $23 million, well, consider how much he would have paid. 10%. Think of the schools that would have been supported. These men, you see, then would have had less government over them and we would have had less government and the basic social functions would be maintained by the tithe, the compulsory tithe. And this is why there was so little government during the first two centuries of American existence because the tithe took care of the basic social functions, education, welfare, and a variety of other things. And it took care of it most economically. One other thing that I'd like to call to your attention, some of you saw, so I hardly need to repeat it, the 
July 12, 1968, Life magazine with the long article on the Esalen Institute and other psychological organizations or agencies which uh, are very, very favorably treated in this article by a woman, Jane Howard, inhibitions thrown to the gentle winds, in which to uh, give people mental health, you uh, have nude uh, sit-ins, you have nude uh, hold-ins and uh, wait-ins and so on, and jump-ups, you jump. In other words, as it says, you systematically regress to childhood. And this movement is sweeping the country. In fact, one grant from uh, a major foundation to apply the basic encounter technique to a whole school system, everybody, teachers, pupils, and administrators involved in the eight high schools, 50 elementary schools, and one college run by the Immaculate Heart of Mary Order in Los Angeles. Maybe you didn't read this in the papers. I'm sure you didn't. But this is one of the reasons why Cardinal McIntyre has been fighting these sisters. But this is only the first step. I have here the uh, seminar, workshop, and symposium schedule for the Esalen Institute. And the title is The Value of Psychotic Experience. And one uh, symposium, which is going to be held beginning July the 30th this week, The Science of Madness, and the other, The Poetry of Madness. Another will be on the uh, psychosis as personal transformation, another on divine madness, Another will be a five-day workshop in positive disintegration, and so on. So that the next step will, after regression to childhood will be regression into madness as the big step towards health. I see we have just about a minute left, and I'd like to share you, with you one further item which uh, amuses me no end. And it is from the Sunday, July 21st, Oakland Tribune. Ferry boats may grace the bay again. After having spent millions and virtually bankrupted the Bay Area to build the bridges and the huge freeways and to destroy the ferry boat system and the streetcar system, which was one of the best in the world, now they find that the timetable shows it took 44 minutes for the ferry train ride from San Francisco to Corte Madera. And this was consistent at any hour of the day, no matter how many persons traveled at rush hour. In rush hour today, commuters cannot make the same trip in one hour. So they're talking about bringing back the ferry boats with federal help after with federal and state help they destroyed them. This is progress in the year of our Lord, 1968. And with that, we stand adjourned. 
authorized by the Calcedon Foundation, archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library, digitized by Christrules.com.